Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When I told Ed Young that it seems like he's a little bit obsessed with pandemics, he sounded slightly offended. Um, well, <laughs> I think I think it's been a forced obsession. Mary. Um, I've been thinking about them for a while, um, and of course, but like before it was cool. <laughs> before, right? Ed writes for the Atlantic. Way back in 2018, he published a piece that seems prescient now. It was called, Is America Ready for a Global Pandemic? The answer to that question was no. At the time, Ed thought being prepared for a pandemic, it was kind of an abstract concept. So he went to the Congo to examine how people there coped with Ebola. He visited a biocontainment unit in Omaha, Nebraska. Everywhere he traveled, he found creaky systems stripped of resources. It troubled him. Three years and a global pandemic later, Ed says he remains troubled. His latest story is called, Is America Prepared for the Pandemic After COVID-19? And you can probably guess his answer to that question. Still, no. I've been looking at um, what people have said about public health for the last century, and you know, the, the, the laments are always the same. In the 1930s, um, the U.S. was spending just over three cents for every medical dollar on public health. That's the system that's meant to prevent disease in communities rather than just treating individually sick people. Um, and the feeling even back then was that mon- that amount of funding is clearly insufficient for preventing diseases among our population. How much do we spend now? Right now we spend even less. Now we spend just over two cents per medical dollar. Um And in those intervening decades, every time money has gone towards public health, there has been an equal and opposite disinvestment. Um, You know, it's like the tides. They go out, they go in, and nothing much changes. So it's not just two steps forward, one step back. It's like two steps forward, three steps back. Yeah, often that's the case. You're saying that last time you wrote this article basically because you thought, We don't have a concrete idea of what it would mean to go through a pandemic. And maybe if I show people what happens in a pandemic, people will be able to visualize it and respond. Mm -hmm. But what's so heartbreaking about that is we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is kind of as concrete as it gets. We still don't see it. We still don't see the fundamental problem here and how to fix it. Yes. Now, we have already had, you know, a year plus of experience with um, uh, the new coronavirus. And yet, when the Delta variant started spreading around the world, we made many of the same mistakes. You know, frankly, we were completely pummeled by this variant that we should have seen coming. And I think that bodes poorly for what is to come. 
Today on the show, you may think being in the middle of one pandemic means you get a pass on thinking about the next one. Ed says, actually, it's the opposite. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If Ed Young had to pick a couple of things about the American response to COVID that give him pause when he looks ahead, thinks about the next pandemic, he'd start here. First off, he says, Americans have thought about this pandemic mostly as an individual problem, not as a community one. We keep asking, how do I keep myself safe? That kind of thinking is pretty ingrained in American culture, makes it hard to fix. But the second thing he worries about is simpler. He wants Americans to focus a little less on MacGyvering our way out of a pandemic with drugs and vaccines. America probably more so than other countries, really hues towards technological fixes for social problems. Like the idea is that we are going to find um, the new tool, the shiny new object that is going to save us. And in this case, it tends to be vaccines or drugs. And that's so ingrained that it almost sounds absurd to question it. Like, of course, it's a disease. Of course, you're going to want to treat it with drugs, of course, you're going to want to vaccinate against it. What else are you going to do? Well, I think actually the what else is very clear if you look at the history of infectious diseases. Like, if you look at the 19th century, um, a lot of thinkers then were very clear that epidemics occur um, and are strongly influenced by social conditions like poverty, like inequality, um, substandard housing, bad sanitation, and these create the conditions in which um, epidemics spread easily, and they explain why some communities are badly hit and others aren't. And if you want to address the problems of epidemics, you need to fix these underlying societal weaknesses. That perspective fell away in the late 19th and early 20th century because of germ theory, because we understood um, for the first time that diseases were the work of microbes. And that gave scientists targets. It gave them villains to focus on. And because of that, this idea of the social consequence causes of disease completely fell by the wayside. Instead, researchers got to think of diseases solely as battles between individuals and pathogens. And that, again, reflects like how we think about COVID today. I mean, Look at look at everything from the last year. Um, the Biden administration has absolutely gone in on an, an almost entirely vaccine-only strategy. It has pitted vaccines against things like masks and testing, um, which um, which re like all of those things should be part of a, a, a unified, multi-layered approach. I mean, they might say it differently. I mean, they might say there are limited resources. And so we've chosen to focus on vaccination because we know it's the most effective of all of these 
possible interventions. And so that's that's why we went in this direction. What would you say to that? I would say it is theoretically the most effective. Like for an for an individual, absolutely. If you pick one thing that gives a person the best chance of resisting this new virus, then yeah, get them vaccinated. Uh, but two things in that. The Delta variant is transmissible enough that you can't just rely on vaccinations alone to safeguard a society. You need to layer it with other protections. And also, vaccines are fantastic and almost miraculous in how effective they are. But vaccines are completely useless unless you can get vaccinations. The US has plateaued very early and at a quite low level of vaccinations compared to other countries that have widespread access. Consider that the the deaths from COVID per capita in the US after all adults became eligible are higher than deaths per capita in a hundred plus other countries before vaccines were ever available. That should alarm us. That should really make us think about what happens when you deploy very, very good medical interventions on a society where millions of people can't access healthcare, where public health has been allowed to rot away for over a century, and where there are gross inequities in who gets to make choices that protect their own health. Having questioned America's pandemic preparedness for years now, Ed says, people in public health have noticed this pattern. The U.S. has cycles of panic and neglect. So when there's a national health crisis, a spigot of funding and public concern opens up. But then at the first hint that we're on the other side of that crisis, the spigot shuts off. Leaders move on. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. There was a dramatic example of this this past summer. That's when President Biden declared the pandemic all but over on July 4th. Thanks to our heroic vaccine effort, we've gained the upper hand against this virus. We can live our lives. Our kids can go back to school. Our economy is roaring back. This was just before the Delta variant walloped much of the country. You know, That's how we're going to stay ahead of these variants and protect the hard-won progress we've made. We never again want to be where we were a year ago today. You can hear in this speech Biden saying the vaccines are here. We've solved it. It's like if you really just go in on one countermeasure, you're very vulnerable when either um, you can't get enough compliance, so vaccination rates aren't high, or if you start getting variants in the future that really start eroding into the protection that vaccines afford. Like people have been saying since late last year that we needed layered strategies that complement each other. That didn't stop being true um, this year, but we, we kind of acted as if it was true. And, and to me, that reflects this very strong bias um, towards biomedical interventions. I want to say two things about what you're saying about prevention, because I think there are a couple of roadblocks I see just to the idea that you're saying that we could have intervened in a different way earlier. 
One is that so much of our public health infrastructure, it's shouldered by the states. So you look at a state like Florida, where when it comes to testing for COVID, they've significantly ramped back their reporting. And they've kind of made a unilateral decision on that. We're not going to report daily. We're in a different part of the pandemic. And so there's not it doesn't feel like there's much that the federal government can do about that when you're relying on an individual state like that that's going to go its own way. The other thing I'd say is that in some of these interventions, there's this optimism. Like with the masks, you talk a little bit about how, you know, the Biden administration basically said you can rip your mask off if you're vaccinated. And it created this sense that masks weren't as important anymore. But that was also meant to be a kind of incentive for people to get vaccinated. There was an intention behind it. And so I could sort of see why they made that decision. I guess what I'm trying to say is these things are pretty complicated. I agree that it's complicated. So I think actually we're sort of in alignment here, right? Like both of these things are examples of the bigger problem that I'm talking about, this panic neglect cycle. Um, so the idea of scaling back on state level data in Florida, for example, is a classic example of this. Things start getting better and then you pull back on the same measures that would have protected you in the first place. Same thing with the masking rollback, right? Like the minute things start improving, we already slalom headfirst into the neglect phase and we erode some of the measures that actually would protect us the next time round. You know, is it hard for the federal government to do very much when states are opposing them? Yes, and that is part of the problem. Um, I will point out that Rochelle Walensky of the CDC did specifically say that their change in guidance was not, in fact, an attempt to incentivize people to get vaccines. So let's just take that as, as given. Even if that's not the case, it is still trading off um, vaccines against masks, like two of our best possible interventions in this pandemic. And it also, it's a move that... Um, is relevant to our discussions about the social causes of disease because it was a move that privileged people who had easiest and earliest access to vaccines, the least vulnerable in our society, while also creating conditions that disadvantaged people who had a harder time. Like people, if you look at people who are unvaccinated, they are disproportionately likely to live in rural areas. They are disproportionately likely to have food insecurity, to have eviction risk, to work in grocery stores and agricultural settings. Like people who are in a more vulnerable state. And those are the people who public health should be centering, like always, like the core of public health is equity. Hmm. And that is what the field should be thinking of at all times. And that is the thing that is often lost. It is often seen as a sidebar to prevention rather than its central mission. When we come back, how policymakers are trying to prepare us for the next pandemic and what they're up against. More with Ed Yong in a minute. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. While the Delta variant might have proven to Ed how unprepared the U.S. is for the next pandemic, he says there is good news. Plenty of people in Washington are trying to do better. The Biden administration recently released its pandemic preparedness plan, asking Congress for $65 billion over the next 10 years. But the thing is, even that is still well below what public health experts say they need. One thing that a few people mentioned to me was that that 65 billion, two thirds of it is going into vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, which, again, seems so eminently reasonable given the way we think about pandemics and what it means to be prepared for them. But I would argue, as would several of the public health folks I've spoken to, that that is insufficient. That is the wrong skew, given everything we've learned so far. I mean, one of the experts you spoke to gave this fiery quote, basically saying, this is a welfare scheme for university scientists and big organizations, and it's not going to trickle down to the people Mm -hmm. at the individual public health level. And I thought that was a really interesting way to frame it, where this is bolstering people who want to make a vaccine real fast, but then the people who have to get the vaccine into arms, potentially, like, where are those guys? Absolutely. It is almost unbelievable to me to for anyone to look at what has happened over the last two years and think the solution to this is make vaccines faster. That just feels like People are stuck in this very old, um, deep-rooted way of thinking about the problem and not actually looking at what has happened. Like, do we honestly think that getting vaccines faster would have fixed things for America, especially given that so many people said that the rapid development of the vaccine was a, a reason for them to doubt that safety um, had been properly considered, that the right checks and balances were in place. Like, fast development was actually a reason for vaccine hesitation in a lot of people. That's such a good way to frame it, because it's it just means looking back at the last couple of years and saying, OK, how do we do? And like, you know what, getting a vaccine out there, we got an A plus. We probably don't need any extra support with that. Right. We, we we got that. But getting the vaccine in arms, maybe that's like a C minus or lower. Right. And yeah, exactly. Like, let's, you know, let's give full credit to the vaccine development process, right? This was the one area in which, um, in which America's response completely exceeded expectations. And I don't mean to undersell the vaccine development process, but what I want to do is to reframe how important that is as part of this bigger picture of preparedness. So 
The interesting thing about the Biden administration's moves is that it has pandemic preparedness stuff that isn't billed as such. Yeah, what do you mean by that? So the American Rescue Plan, um, in my view and in the view of several of the public health people I spoke to, is a pandemic preparedness bill. It's just that almost everyone would not talk about it in that way. Why not? Because it has some stuff that is directly relevant to pandemics or, or, or seemingly is directly relevant to pandemics. It has, um, you know, provisions for strengthening the public health infrastructure, which are much needed. But it also includes things like um, child tax credits. It, it includes things that are that have been estimated to lift millions of people out of poverty um, this year. And my argument is that that is crucial to pandemic preparedness. Whether you think about it on, in that way or not, and you should do, it is the case that if you make large groups of people less socially vulnerable, they will be better able to resist a new spreading virus. And that means thinking of preparedness, not just in terms of vaccines or drugs, but also in terms of things like paid sick leave, in terms of food assistance, in terms of um, safe, uh, decent housing for people. It, it involves thinking about things like, you know, decarceration in our prison system, universal health care. Um, well, so you now know, you're it, getting into social welfare stuff. I am. Where I think some people would begin to feel uncomfortable. And it's where we hit this impasse. And it kind of makes me wonder how you think about it when someone like Joe Manchin, senator of West Virginia, gets up and says, I want to prevent us from living in an entitlement state, which to me means looking at those social welfare programs and saying, we don't need all of that. <laughs> a lot of America already lives in an entitlement state. Um, a lot of America lives very privileged lives um, that affords them the ability to look after themselves and their health in the event of a pandemic, and frankly are blissfully oblivious about the centuries of social discrimination that allowed them to be able to do so. Like expanding pr that ability to care for yourself and to care for your community in the event of a new disease is <laughs> saying that um, is entitlement when you yourself have benefited from the fruits of the centuries of institutional privilege is frankly absurd. And it's looking at that problem in the wrong way. Here's something I think about all the time, which is that it's not politically expedient to do the right thing here, especially for someone like President Biden, who's been in Washington such a long time. Doing the real right thing here requires saying out loud, me and my colleagues have been fleecing the public health system for decades at this point, and we need to get it back to a healthy baseline. And it's much easier to say Republicans did this wrong or Trump did it wrong or, you know, it's much easier to say let's just go back to quote unquote normal the way it was a few years back. I wonder if you think that political problem gets in the way here. I, I do. And I think that is a problem for all of us beyond just policymakers. Like it is to really think about why we have been dealt such a heavy blow by COVID, 
requires much more than pointing at, say, Trump um, or any one actor or any one party or any, or, you know, any specific group of people. Um, it requires actually grappling with a century plus of racism, of classism, of terrible policies, of a normal state that we have all sort of collectively internalized and agreed to accept and that we are all complicit in. People so badly want to return to normal without grappling with the fact that normal led to this. In the world that we built was a world of intense inequality and therefore a world that was intensely vulnerable to a new pandemic. And if we just revert back to that world, we are going to be in the same situation. And look, I know it's really hard to think about this stuff, right? It keeps me up at night. I don't love thinking about it because it's it raises some very hard questions about who we are as a society and what we have allowed ourselves to tolerate. It's, it's like to really think about it is like staring into the face of in, straight into the sun. But uh, what choice do we have? Having one pandemic doesn't get us like a get out of jail free card, right? Like viruses don't aren't like forming an orderly line. They're not taking a number and they're not waiting for us to be done with this before the next one like queues up. So, but that's how I want it to be. I know. I mean, I, Mary, no, no one wants to not be thinking about this anymore more than I do. I I promise you this. Ed Young, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Ed Young writes over the Atlantic. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and Carmel Del Shad. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. I'm Mary Harris. You can catch me over on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Meanwhile, I will talk to you back in this feed tomorrow.